is your host, Alex Garrett. Ladies and gentlemen, you could have been anywhere in the world tonight, but you're here with us in New York City. Are you ready? Welcome inside Adapting with Alex Garrett. Oh, if the shoe is wearing. Let's adapt together right now. And welcome inside to another edition of Adapting with Alex Garrett. This time, we're going to talk about the workplace again. Because as I've said before, uh, I think one of the best things to do as we're sort of getting vaccines here, as we're getting some positives back in the country um, as far as killing this virus, yeah, the workplace is important. You know, I I mentioned last year in July, 70% were reporting burnout for working from home and they want to get in. WeWork had tons of memberships uh, in August because they wanted to have that group think, that, that community space, again, that workspace. And someone who I think feels very strongly about the workplace in general is Dr. Rosie Ward. Uh, Dr. Ward, first of all, thanks for joining me today. Thank you so much for having me. My pleasure. You were so fired up about the workplace that you actually wrote a book called Rehumanizing the Workplace. So let's talk about first uh, the adaptations that need to be made moving forward. I really haven't had an expert on this, but I feel like you're the right guest for it. Adaptations that could be and should be made as we maybe are becoming post-pandemic here. Yeah, there's a lot. And I think that the pandemic certainly elevated what we focus on, which is really realizing that whether people are physically going to go back to a workplace or whether remote working is going to be the new norm or some kind of whatever it's going to be in between, that people are looking for humanity. I think when you look at the pandemic, you look at the crises that have gone on politically and racially and just you name it in this country, there is such a divisiveness and a lack of feeling seen and people's mental health is kind of in the toilet. And so I really think when we look about adapting moving forward it's are we seeing people as whole beings and are we honoring their needs are we honoring their unique gifts and talents and are we recognizing that there isn't a one-size-fits-all and really whether it's a workplace that we all go to or a workplace that's remote and dispersed are we creating the conditions that everybody really feels like they can do their best work that they can thrive and they feel cared for and they can grow it and stretch themselves. You know, it's interesting you say that because I feel like the media just, it, it flies under their noses how this is really impacting people who want to be in the workplace, isn't it? Yeah, for sure. I mean, you have, I, I talked to everyone from people who really desperately miss that human connection and running into people at the water cooler or in the hallway and, and that piece and other people that are just absolutely loving the flexibility of being at home and and are really upset at the thought of eventually having to go back and really everything in between. But I think that, you know, with, with those types of businesses where people had to be remote, what I've been hearing is that people have appreciated actually getting to see more of the humanity of their workforce. Like you're seeing their pets and their kids in the background, or you're seeing their messy office, or we're starting to see people as they really are a little bit more. Um, And I even think that people then are in industries where they've had to go in to work, you know, the challenges that that brings and and the risks that it brings and the concerns that they have. And so, um, yeah, there's just, I'm encouraged by the fact that this was needed far beyond the pandemic, even though our book launched at the start of the pandemic. But I think, what has happened in the last year has really brought to light this this need for greater intentionality and really greater humanity and consciousness at, at our businesses and our workplaces. Well, you know, I saw the stat 69% or so burned out by working from home. And, and I guess 
right there. As you say, if we continue the work from home thing, how can people reduce that burnout? What, what would you suggest to them? Well, first, I always am a big fan of looking in the mirror. So sometimes people's burnout is their own sense of how do I know that I'm making productive contributions and how do I know that I'm effective and people feeling like they have to work nonstop now because they're not being seen at an office, so to speak. And so I really think that organizations and, and, and formal people leaders and employees need to just have a really level setting conversation of, are we clear about expectations about how the work gets done, what a good job looks like. And then we really need to be explicit about setting boundaries just because your home doesn't mean that you suddenly need to work longer hours or not take breaks or never get up and walk around. That's not productive for people. So I really think it's reimagining what, what do I need to be effective, making sure you're on the same page so that obviously customers and, and stakeholders are, are being served in an effective way, but that just working longer and longer and longer and not taking breaks is not helpful for anyone. Uh, Dr. Ward, Dr. Rosie Ward is who I'm talking to. Let, let's bring a little humanity to you as well. So you, you write the book. You you obviously have written it from experience, but with the pandemic specifically, what experiences have you felt and how have you been able to not stay afloat, do more than stay afloat, obviously, but how have you been able to manage all of this uh, craziness? I think as best as I can, like anyone else, I would say as a business owner, not unlike many other smaller businesses, you know, we initially went into, okay, a lot of business got canceled. How can we add value to our clients, applying for PPP loans, like the stuff to just keep the business going. But then it really was a, I'm thankful that we've done the work to be clear on our purpose and our values. And it's like, okay, the world has thrown us a massive curveball. How can we be in service of our purpose? How can we stay true to our values? And, and what does our pivot look like um, so that we come up the other side? And I launched a podcast. I started doing other things. It was like, okay, can't go speak at conferences. You can't do this. You can't do that. You have to consult virtually. So I think that um, really the forced pause and the forced relook at how we do things in the long run, I think is going to serve us very well from a business standpoint. I would say from a human standpoint, you know, it's interesting. I really realized that I got stuck in the go, 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 go. And I was traveling a lot and, you know, not getting enough sleep. And I really took the opportunity to start to reset and get sleep and, and reset my own boundaries. And I'm finding it's making me a more effective mom, wife, friend, human being, and a more effective business owner. So I think that there's some gifts that came with, um, the, the shutting down that was forced upon us. <laughs> right. And for me, I actually just kept podcasting every day and that kind of got me through working from home. And then I finally got back into the studio where I produce radio and do podcasting. So I've just been busy. Uh, and you mentioned the business and the purpose. I presume you're talking about the purpose of Salvio Partners. So talk to us about them for a little bit. Yeah. Yes. Our purpose is to rehumanize the workplace so that people can bring their best selves to work and home or really fuse their personal and professional lives. And so we consult with organizations to help them clarify their purpose and operationalize their values. We really look at how do you have a learning mindset and a leadership mindset? How do you have more effective leaders? How do you have more effective teams? We also do, uh, do professional development. So we train people to use our models to either consult with them, with their clients or to help their own organization. So really looking at how do we have a ripple of really creating a community of amazing leaders that can go out and do this work because there's a lot of work that's needed to be done if we are going to have more human effective workplaces. Uh, the human side of this is there. So I guess my next thing would be like, 
for the workplace itself, and I'm sure maybe Savio and, and yourself, talk about this. Let's say someone doesn't feel good and yet they're being asked to go back into work. Have you seen that at all? Have you seen any pushing of boundaries of workers that maybe is being underreported? Yeah, I I think that there are numerous organizations that are not really human, right? And there's many that are. And, and I definitely am hearing stories about people who aren't feeling safe going back in or feeling they're forced to go back in or they're going back in. They might be living in a state perhaps that um, doesn't have a mask mandate or isn't really following the guidelines from the CDC. And and it's unsettling for people. And, you know, they need the income, yet they're feeling like they're at risk or maybe they themselves are at risk or they have a family member that they are responsible for who's at risk. And so I think it's bringing up a whole host of challenges of, of people um, not being heard, not being seen, you know, are they ready or not? Is there an option for them if they're not ready to go back in? I mean, obviously, again, there are some jobs and some industries where it's, it's not optional, but where it is optional, uh, are we really honoring where people are and realizing that we might be ushering into a new normal where people aren't in the office five days a week anymore, or um, you have a rotating schedule or something like that. And so I think if we're not listening to our people, like really listening to them, and finding out what they need, what they're worried about, what they care about, you know, when things open back up more, meaning that organizations are hiring more. I mean, some are and some aren't, right? It's different for every industry. But your best people are going to be the ones that are going to leave if they're not feeling cared for by you. Uh, does that include vaccines? Like, do you do you think more companies should, you know, in, encourage the vaccine or is requiring the vaccine um a little too much? Like, what, what is, how are companies dealing with the vaccine rollout? I think it varies. I mean, obviously, the rollout itself has, um, is not consistent. Um, I will say that I live in Minnesota and it's primarily been with healthcare organizations, and healthcare organizations already have different guidelines or requirements for their employees in terms of whether, you know, either they have to have a flu shot every year or a test that they're not planning to get it. So, but there's some kind of documentation or, you know, having various other immunizations. So I think that, you know, it depends on the industry. And I think, you know, I look at it as it's still a personal choice. There are risks with any vaccine. I personally um, got dose one. I'm waiting for, I get dose two in two weeks. Um, But I think that, you know, some people might not, they might be allergic to some of the ingredients. And so I think that workplaces have to be really careful about, um, and who knows what the EEOC is going to say, but they have to be very careful about forcing stuff, but I think there has to be a thoughtful strategy and, and how are you, if, if people aren't going to get vaccinated, then how are you going to still maintain the protocol that is supposed to keep us safe, you know, masking and social distancing and whatnot. So I think that every workplace is going to have to kind of figure it out as more vaccine becomes available. But I don't think forcing anybody with anything um, when it comes to vaccinations uh, is, is usually a good idea. And even healthcare institutions don't force it. They highly encourage it. Or, you know, make you sign an affidavit that you are choosing not to. Now, you got a PhD in all of this organization and workplace. What got you inspired to really change the workplace and help them adapt to better needs of their uh, of their employees? Quite frankly, uh, twofold. One, I was a brand new manager that didn't know what the hell I was doing and had no one to develop me and thought, my gosh, there's a problem there. But Really, the impetus behind me getting my PhD and doing this work was being the victim of a dehumanized toxic workplace and what it did to me personally, it, uh, gaining weight, sucking the well-being out of me, 
going from being an overachiever to watching the clock, um, my friends saying, Rosie, what's wrong with you? You don't seem like you. And I think when you've personally experienced the ill effects of a toxic work environment, you have a different level of passion of not wanting other people to have to go through that. Was there any bad habits that came about because of the toxic workplace? Yeah, you know, what I would say is I think, well, I've experienced it twice. So I would say the first toxic workplace, which sparked me to go get my Ph.D., was I think I just was probably eating more um, quantity than I would. I was still working out and whatnot, but I was withdrawing from friends. I was, um, you know, just just kind of going into a general spunk. Um, I would say that my second toxic work experience, which is when I left and, and started Salveo Partners, was um, definitely probably doing happy hours more, definitely, um, you know, checking out more. I mean, I think when we're miserable, we find ways to alleviate that pain, that anxiety, that agony. We find ways to cope to try to at least temporarily feel better. Um, and, and none of it's helpful, regardless of what we do, whether we check out, whether we turn to substances, whether we lash out at people. Um, but it, it, has, it has its cost. You have different areas you wanted to cover, so cover that with us. I know there's about five different ways we can really re- rehumanize, so let's dive in. Yeah, we call them our five rehumanizing principles, and I will say that they are applicable beyond the workplace as well. Uh, the first one is what we call build a lighthouse, and it's really about having clarity of purpose, not just words on a wall, but really what are we about beyond our products and services? What's the difference you're trying to make in the world? And then right along with that, have we also clearly defined behavioral anchors of how we need to show up, how we behave? And so we call it the lighthouse principle because in this disruptive, chaotic world, you know, a lighthouse acts like that. It is that beacon of light that cuts through the fog and helps provide some calm in the midst of the storm, guiding us where to go and, and clarity of purpose and clear behavioral anchors do just that on an organizational level, but really also on an individual level. So that's, that's the first principle. And I think we, we can all do work to clarify that on the individual level. If we haven't an organization, certainly um, if they haven't clarified, it can, otherwise they need to also create deliberate practices to live that every day as well, to keep that lighthouse lit, if you will. Oh, the, that's the second re- yeah. Oh, for sure. For sure. And if you look at it, I mean, let's be honest, the organizations that were able to, the word that was 2020 pivot effectively, they had a clear purpose and it was like, well, no, this just makes sense. Like we can do this now because it's aligned with who we are. It's just a different way of us serving our purpose, right? Maybe we're not a clothing manufacturer now, or we're not a distillery. We now make hand sanitizer or whatever it might be. And so that the companies that already had that fared a lot better during the pandemic or have been faring better than those that didn't for sure. Now, you want to delve into fearless environments. I kind of like this one, but but expand on that one. Yeah, so the second rehumanizing principle is create fearless environments. And this really stems from the incredible work of Amy Edmondson and others on psychological safety. And that if we don't feel like we can ask for help or we can speak up um, and share an idea or speak up if something doesn't seem right, it's really about creating this safe space where we can take the interpersonal risk where someone might judge me. Um, where I can speak up and say, hey, I have this idea or I need help or I don't know or I don't know the answer. And there's such great research that looks at when organizations have a high degree of this, teams function better. I mean, Google did this amazing five-year study called Project Aristotle and their most effective teams you know, had high psychological safety. So this is really all about, yes, physical safety is important, but if we don't have that psychological safety, 
we're, we're in a whole host of trouble. And, um, and it really resides at that local team level or your family or your, you know, your community. So can I speak up? Can I ask for help? Can I, um, can I share my thoughts and ideas, which when we're in a disruptive environment, if we're going to adapt, we need everybody to be able to share their ideas and speak up. So that's really what the fearless environment is about is, are we making it safe for people to do that? Well, and I think speaking up is vital, right? If something does go wrong or something, you have to know that you can say that without feeling backlash. Absolutely. Absolutely. It's, it's critical. And you see it and it doesn't even matter what industry. It's, it's super important that people feel that they can do that. And people are withholding their ideas when we need them if they don't mm. feel safe speaking up, too. So it, it's not just about speaking up if something's wrong. It's, hey, I have an idea or, hey, I have a thought. But if I think that you're going to criticize me or step on it and I don't share it, what a waste. So I guess you're saying let's inspire people to get uncomfortable and speak up. Yeah, for sure. And that, that gets us into rehumanizing principle number three, which is wade in the messy middle. And, you know, if I'd be the first to say if there was a uh, magic pill or a fast forward button, you know, that we didn't have to feel the discomfort and the yuck, I, I would be the first in line. But the reality is, is that any growth or transformation that we've had in our lives that has been meaningful and profound has usually not been a straight line. It's not been easy. It's been messy. It's been uncomfortable. It's been hard, but that's also the most rewarding. And so it's really hard to lean into that discomfort and do the work that we have to do to get out of our own way if we don't have a fearless environment. So it really goes hand in hand, but it's really about embracing that messy middle, um, doing the work ourselves to rewrite our self-limiting narrative, really doing the work that we can show up as a better version of ourselves, which feeds right into rehumanizing principle number four, which is show up as a leader. Because we firmly believe that leadership is not a title or a role. It is a behavior. And so we define leadership as maximizing our positive impact on the world by becoming our best fully authentic selves and supporting those around us to break past barriers and step into their greatness. And we can't become our best fully authentic selves if we're not going to wait in the messy middle. And we can't do that if we don't have a fearless environment. So they really all kind of are interconnected with each other. But it's really looking at, and really throughout the book, we give tips at the end of each chapter of here's what you can do right now to show up as a leader and influence and lead positive change regardless of your role. Uh, Let's stay on four for a second, because obviously in a pandemic, leadership is even more vital, isn't it? Yeah, absolutely. I mean, you need formal leadership, right? I mean, you need the people who are guiding us and, and, and where to go and, and have the knowledge. But I would say that leadership is all around us. I mean, you've seen community members, you know, take care of one another. And you've seen incredible examples of leadership for people that actually don't have the formal role or the formal authority. But I would say that, yeah, people who also happen to have that formal role, that formal authority and responsibility haven't even greater responsibility to show up authentically and to show up in a way that inspires and supports people to show up as their best self. Well, it reminds me of uh, Brett Crozier. I think that's his name, Captain Brett Crozier of the USS Teddy Roosevelt, who said, look, the ship has a couple COVID. We can't, you know, we, we have to fix this. And they fired him for speaking up. It was just, but that was leadership in a very vital moment. And so yeah. it shows, it doesn't, doesn't show up on the workplace, it shows up everywhere. How much psychological study or how much of the psychology of all this did you guys do to, to make this book? I feel like this is a very in-depth look at the human mind as well. One of our core values as an organization is about everything that we do is rooted in sound science applicable for human beings. Uh, and so 
we do a lot of looking at neurobiology and neuroscience and looking at the psychology of change and human behavior for sure. Uh, we also very much uh, try to stay up on the research around workplace culture and around stress and all that. So you, you'll see the reference list is ridiculously long, but really I, I feel it's really important that we're rooting ourselves in work that's being done that can guide and shape us and knowledge that is super important for us to build upon. If people are taking notes about this, uh, how can people reach out to you as well? Yeah, I can be found on all of the normal uh, social media channels. So LinkedIn, uh, you can find me there, uh, Rosie Ward. You can find me on Twitter, it's Dr. Rosie. You can find me on Facebook, Dr. Rosie Ward, LinkedIn, um, uh, Instagram. Um, but our website, salveopartners.com, uh, is our business-to-business website and where we have all of our training and consulting and our book. And then my personal professional website is drrosieward.com, and that's where I have my podcast and I have blogs and kind of a little bit more about who I am as a leader and really more on inspiring the individual who might want to show up as a leader. And as we, we've been saying, like it can take – anybody could step up and be a leader that doesn't have to be a title to it that's the other thing i think we were humbled that titles don't mean much in a pandemic and maybe we could take that into post-pandemic like yeah we have this title or that title, but it doesn't matter because we can all get sick we can all get we can all you know something could happen or something great could happen it just maybe getting away from titles might be a good idea moving forward yeah, I mean, I know that there are some organizations, um, there's actually one that we talk about in our book where they literally do not have titles because it's it just, they don't whatsoever. Be, and it's very interesting. It's a very interesting way to operate. So we have to look at people through the lens of how they add value and how they contribute, not what do you, what do, you do or what's some arbitrary title we've given you. Well, there'll still be people who take their titles seriously, even after all we've gone through as a country and a world. Well, you know, there's a there's a whole spectrum of where people are, I will say, in their own development. And, and so I think that there are people that are very much attached to titles and status, and that's where they look for value for themselves. I would suggest that that's not the most effective way or place to look uh, for value. Um, I Brene Brown is known for saying something along the lines of, you know, it is human to care what people think. But when we are defined by it, we lose our capacity to lead. Mm. So if I am defined by a title, what happens if that title goes away? What happens if I lose my job? Right. If I'm defined by what how many likes I get on Instagram or how many likes of this, like what happens when those go away? And so I think we have to really this is the, the weight in the messy middle work. But we have got to really do our own work to realize and be able to look at ourselves and know that we have value and also be really clear about whose people who whose opinions actually matter and whose we're going to set aside because Lord knows there's a lot of um, judgment and, and, you know, internet trolls and people who have no problem lobbying an opinion or a judgment, but they don't really know us. And so that we're not letting that define us. Exactly. And, and most who are, I like that some don't really take the troll seriously. I think it's a good thing. Uh, I noticed that this was published by conscious capitalism press. And I'm very curious about this term, because I, I have started to feel about capitalism in the community. How can we do that more? Instead of tearing it down completely, how can we make capitalism happen in the community? Do you feel like that's sort of the same concept with conscious capitalism, that we get it back out there in the community and not really on Wall Street specifically? Yeah, so conscious capitalism is a really incredible movement that's over a decade old. And it's really this idea that capitalism got a bad rap and it's not a bad thing. I mean, capitalism lifts people up out of poverty, right? And it employs people and it helps communities. And But 
It's the old school, I'm going to call it the Jack Welch version of business that was shareholder supremacy, right? Everything is all about the shareholders and all about Wall Street, and there's a better way of doing business. And so conscious capitalism whole purpose is about elevating humanity through business. And it's the intersection of, of these four pillars that companies have a higher purpose, which is our lighthouse principle, that they're very conscious about their culture. They don't leave it to chance and they nurture it, that they um, have what they call conscious leadership. So that's really our, our weight in the messy middle plus our show up as a leader principle. It's really all about, you know, that people are showing up with that self-aware, um, thoughtful, doing their own work, showing up in the spirit of service of others, and then stakeholder value that all stakeholders, so your the environment you operate within, your customers, your suppliers, your your shareholders, yes, your employees, that everybody is equally valuable and we're not going to trade off one at the expense of another. And what's really, really cool about this is they've been studying these conscious businesses. So as an example, Patagonia is one that people might be really familiar with, or Disney, and there's privately held and then there's publicly traded ones. But they operate with this long-term perspective, right? They're, they're going to ride the ups and downs of markets and pandemics and, and those types of things. And what's incredible is if you look at just the publicly traded conscious businesses over a 15-year period, they outperform the S&P 500 by a 14 to 1 ratio. And so it is, it is massive. And so there, it, it's completely counter to the normal way of doing business, but it's like we care about you, we take care of our people, we take care about of our environment, we're, we're, we anchor ourselves in our purpose and values. And so I do think that you're starting to see a lot of um, smaller organizations or community groups that are using these principles and that are getting involved in chapters. And it's a, it's a huge growing movement of there is a better way to do business and that capitalism by itself is not a bad thing. When it's done well, it can heal communities that can lift people up out of poverty. But we, we've got to look beyond this shareholder supremacy model that has been around for far too long. You know, I was I was thinking about this because last week they talked about the jamming up of the stock market and, and everything like that. Meanwhile, there were tech companies, there were startups that were making $55 million here in New York. TouchCast is a, they want to do reality virtual events for people. But some startups are making money here. And I'm thinking to myself, conscious capitalism, capitalism community could actually be reaching out to those making money and saying, hey, Bring aboard those that are unemployed. I mean, why aren't we seeing enough of that outreach by even government? You know, it varies. I mean, there are actually some incredible organizations that are definitely conscious businesses that are are lifting people up out of poverty. They're um, they're employing people who are um, they're employing people who are you know formally incarcerated. They're employing people who are just challenge and judge and whatnot and um like graystone bakeries in new york and they're they're a great example they make the um the brownies that go on the ice cream for example for ben and jerry's ice cream and they have an open hiring policy where they no questions asked but they have certain parameters that you have to meet as far as like how you show up and do your job but we know people have had a rough uh go and we still want to employ you there's organizations that uh, focus specifically on you know, trying to help people who are experiencing homelessness. We write about one of those in our book. So there are some incredible organizations that really rethink their their hiring practices to really help those in need. Um, but there's certainly a much greater opportunity uh, for more organizations to do that. And the whole premise of, of conscious capitalism is it's not, yes, there could be nonprofits in there, but it's not, it's not charity. It's, hey, we have to have a solid business model and we have to be profitable. But if we are, that benefits everybody. 
you know, I, I, and this thing about capitalism in the community, I also think we, we can't talk down the big corporations because they are hiring our, our local neighbor down the block to, to do work. And we have to honor that, don't we? Well, for sure. I mean, obviously people, people need to live, they need to fund their, their life. Right. But I think that there's a big difference of being able to, you know, have to take a job because you need to put food on the table sure. and you're working for an organization that doesn't give a rat's behind about you versus, you know what, I get to work for an organization that sees me as a human being and actually cares about my, my well-being. It's a very different experience. Well, I'm going to leave people with the cliffhanger for number five. Uh, a, get the book, Rehumanizing the Workplace. And I definitely want to have you back on for a follow-up on this because this is a not a one-episode conversation, you know? So I, yeah, I'd love to have I'd you back. Yeah, I'd be happy to. Um, yeah, I'd love to. And so one last thing, though, what is one thing that people may not know about you that you're willing to say right here? I always ask one thing people may not know to give you a little humanness as well. I feel like I'm pretty much an open book as people get to know me. There's not a lot that's off limits. Um, let's see. I, what would people not know about me? I... And a music freak, like meaning my brain, I retain song lyrics of songs I don't even like. And like, I just like, I, I can make a playlist for any occasion. And I don't know, like my brain is musically wired. Me too. I need it. You know, I rollerblade in New York most nights and I just need that to calm me down after a work day. So I feel you there with the music. It just, it helps set the mood. Uh, all right, Dr. Rosie Ward, give us your website one more time and your Twitter and, uh, and then we'll stay in touch. Yeah, my website is drrosieward.com, and Twitter is at Dr. Rosie. Facebook is uh, Dr. Rosie Ward, and Instagram is also Dr. Rosie Ward. Thanks so much. You're welcome. Thank you again for having me. I'm Alex Garrett, where, as you know, we are always adapting.